0: This episode of the Art of Manly's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is much more than just another greens product. It's the most complete whole food supplement available with 75 ingredients working together to help with 11 different areas of health. It's been developed over 10 years by doctors, nutritionists. and one scoop, it's like having 11 supplements in one. What I love most about athletic greens, not only are you getting all those micronutrients that are vital for your health, tastes great too. A lot of other greens products, like I've said this before, it tastes like you're licking the floor of a barn. This one actually has a nice little sweet taste and it's great. Put it in a smoothie or you can just shake with water and drink it. If you want to get 20 free travel packs valued at $99, all you got to do is make a first purchase and you'll get 20 free packs with that first purchase. To get that offer, go to athleticgreens.com manliness. Again, athleticgreens.com manliness. Get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When it comes to fitness and nutrition, the nutrition part can cause a lot of confusion. There's so much information out there about which is the best diet to follow, and often that advice is contradictory. My guest today is here to clear up some of that confusion. His name is Robert Santana. He's a registered dietitian, a PhD candidate in nutrition and exercise science, a starting strength coach, and the nutrition coach at Starting Strength Online Coaching. Today on the show, we discuss all things diet and nutrition. We begin with a big picture overview of the three main macronutrients our body uses to function and the science of their effect on the body Robert walks us through how our body partition nutrients as we consume them and explains exactly how we get fat and how we store body fat in the process Robert debunks a lot of popular ideas people have about nutrition these days like eating carbs makes you fat and eating fat is an easy way to lose body fat in fact he argues if you're trying to gain muscle mass and wanting to lose some body fat in the process you might need to be eating more carbs than you are now he then walks us through the science of fat loss and gives practical examples of what a diet needs to look like if you want to lose weight while also maintaining muscle. We also talk about how to gain weight that's more muscle than fat. And we end our conversation discussing my experience in cutting weight, what I eat from day to day, and why trying to get six-pack abs isn't necessarily a healthy goal. A lot of information here. Check out our show notes at aom.is Santana, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. And Robert joins me now via clearcast.io. Robert Santana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you are a starting strength coach, but you're also a registered dietitian. And you're also my, my personal nutrition coach. And we'll talk, maybe we can talk about some of the stuff you, you've been doing with me. But before we get into that, let's talk about your background. Obviously, a barbell coach, nutrition. I'm, I'm curious, what came first? Was it the barbell training or the diet part? Or did they both kind of start at the same time? I'd have to say probably the lifting because that dates back to when I was a kid diet stuff came
1: later, but I tend to, I don't know. I tend to grasp. I tended to grasp the diet stuff a little bit easier. I think it took me longer to really get a handle on the training.
0: And then now, I mean, you've continued besides being a registered dietitian, you've continued your education. You're getting your PhD, correct? In nutrition science. That is correct. The um, degree is actually kind of interesting. It's interdisciplinary,
1: so it's in exercise and nutritional sciences. So I've, been uh, spending time in uh, both areas. I've taken some nutrition classes. I've taken some exercise classes. I've helped with a nutrition study. I'm currently running an exercise study. So I got my head in all of it right now.
0: Is there something you've, you've been focusing on in particular?
1: My dissertation project is focusing on the effects of weightlifting, essentially, on arterial stiffness. So basically how lifting affects your arteries for
0: you know, the layman's version of that. Okay. Well, let's get into... Like nutrition, because I think like in my experience, I think this is how the same for a lot of people. I mean, you said nutrition came easy to you, but I think for a lot of people, like nutrition is like the hardest or most confusing part of, of health because there's so much information out there and it's constantly changing, right? And we'll talk about this. Like, you know, one time it's like, Hey, carbs are great. You got a carbo load. And like, no, no, no carbs are evil. You need to do paleo or Atkins or something. It's all, always changing. Let's talk big picture first, and then we'll let that guide the rest of the discussion. When it comes to nutrition and performance, you're primarily focusing on you know, the big macronutrients, which is protein, carbs, and fat. Let's walk through. What, what does each one of these macronutrients do for us physiologically and uh, in f- terms of performance? Sure, of course. So
1: protein is the one most lifters are familiar with. And that's because you think about protein, you think about muscle. So muscles are comprised of proteins. But um, when you're trying to build muscle, you have to break them down so that they can build up larger. And the way that happens is you start adding more muscle proteins. And that's going to require additional protein than somebody who's basically sedentary. So when you want to think of protein, you want to think of recovery, you want to think of basically building body proteins. So to take that a step further is, is we're not just talking about muscle. We're talking about hair, skin, nails, all that is driven by your protein intake. So you'll find that with like elderly individuals, for instance, if they're not eating enough protein, they tend to, their skin gets brittle, their hair gets brittle. They um also get weaker for reasons that most of my clientele would understand. And simply by giving them more protein, you'll tend to see that their hair will grow a little bit fuller. Their nails will grow a little bit thicker. Their skin will improve, et cetera. So, proteins build things. That's how you want to think of protein. When it comes to carbs, that's your energy source. And uh, this is where things get kind of funny with the information. Typically, we store about a good chunk of carbs as uh, stored glucose. So you want to think of when you eat carbs, I'm going to store some of that in your muscles and in your liver. And that's called glycogen. Glycogen is your stored form of glucose. Now to take that a step further, all carbs Get converted into glucose. That's what they do. They get converted into glucose. And then a lot of that gets stored. So the average person who's 70 kilograms is going to have about 425 grams of glucose is stored as muscle glycogen. About roughly 75 grams is stored as liver glycogen. So that's pretty much the fate of carbs in terms of energy storage. Now, also, you got to put that in the context of activity, right? So Carbs have a relation, a linear relationship with the intensity of an activity. So the more intense an activity is, basically the harder you're moving, the harder you're pushing, the faster you're running, the heavier you're lifting to a certain extent. And I'll go back to that. You're going to be using more carbs. So if you're going for a light jog, it's probably an even mix. And then as that pace gets faster and faster, you're going to rely more on carbohydrates. So you want to think the harder the activity is that you're doing, the more carbohydrates you're typically going to need in a lifting context you have your three energy systems. You know, you have your ATP, phosphocreatine, and that's basically the system that's responsible for fast, rapid, explosive activities. So maybe your first rep on a set of five, you're primarily using ATP and phosphocreatine. And then if you're you know you doing a, a set of eight, 10, 12, you know, you're going to start tapping into that muscle glycogen. And then once you start getting over 20 reps or you start doing aerobic exercise, now you're in oxidative metabolism. So you're going to be using a, a good mix of fat and carbs, but At least in the beginning, it starts with ATP, phosphocreatine, then transitions over into glucose in the form of glycogen. You need carbohydrates, essentially, to perform in any sport. It's not just lifting. If you're a runner, you're going to need carbohydrates. If you're a cyclist, you're going to need them. If you're a weightlifter, if you're a football player, and it's because the activity is more intense than resting. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're resting, you're burning 100% fat. And I'll go to fat next. But basically, when you're resting and you're on a mixed diet, You're going to get an even mix of both. You're going to be burning fat and carbs. In general, as as activity becomes more intense, you rely more on carbs. That leaves me with fat. So what is fat used for? Well, it's used for a lot of things. So we have these things in our bodies called membranes. And those membranes are found in in all, all of our cells. And the integrity of those membranes rely on fat. Fat forms a lot of those membranes. Number two, we have certain vitamins that require fat for absorption. So you have your vitamin A, your vitamin D, your vitamin E. And your vitamin K, those are your fat soluble vitamins. You have to consume fat in order to absorb those. So that's uh, number two. And then number three, this is fat's primary storage. And, you know, the most popular among most people is you store it as energy. Fat's your energy depot. It's the most easily converted into stored body fat, which is basically stored triglyceride. If you want to use a scientific term, some of your audience probably knows what that means, some don't. But basically, fat stores as fat. Primarily, and then uh, it's also used for other physiological processes.
0: Okay, so that that's a good like sort of overarching view of like what what these macronutrients do. So let's get into the details of this. Let's let's talk about carbs, right? So you you said that we use carbs to do intense exercise, high intensity running, uh, weightlifting, etc. Let's say like when you consume carbs, like how do how does our body figure out like when to partition carbs to stored glycogen? or when to use those carbs you consumed immediately for energy use? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. Good question. Um, you're typically not, like if,
1: let's say you're eating and you're working out, you're probably not going to use what you're eating. You're probably going to tap into your store glycogen first because it's easier to get to. You know, you have to, when you eat carbs, you have to digest them, absorb them, et cetera. So typically when you start exercising, you're going to start tapping into muscle glycogen first.
0: But, but how soon, like how soon... Do carbs that we consume become accessible? Do, do we know that even? Because you hear all this thing about carb timing. Well, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna eat a you know a fast digesting carb, you know, an hour before working out. Is that is there, any, is there anything to that or not? Oh,
1: I see where you're going with that. Yeah. So there's this uh, thing called the glycemic index, and uh, it basically is a classification system for how your body responds to carbs in terms of Changing blood glucose levels, whether, you know, going, typically going up when you eat carbs, the, um, your blood sugar goes up. And depending on where those carbs are coming from, that's going to influence that response. And then what they've done is they've, I don't know how many decades ago, they basically studied the effects of different foods on blood glucose levels and came up with these values for the glycemic index. Now, the limitation of the glycemic index is that we're rarely just eating carbs i mean i guess it depends on the person you know some people might eat a whole bag of skittles but assuming that you know you're eating a mixed meal that glycemic index kind of goes out the window because if that meal has things like protein fat or fiber that's going to affect your blood glucose response which leads me to your question about okay do you want a fast acting carb or slow acting carb yeah sure so if you eat something like skittles that would be considered a fast acting carb because that's basically you know sucrose which is table sugar and that's half glucose, half fructose, and fructose being fruit sugar. And uh, you're typically going to absorb that fast. Multodextrins also absorb pretty rapidly. And then pure glucose, if you get like something like a dextrose supplement, that's going to be pretty much conver- – there's no conversion. It has to go through it. It just goes straight to glucose. It's already glucose, so you can use that right away. But um, typically, the best time to take those in is either after a workout – Uh, during a workout, if it's a very long workout and not necessarily because it's going to like, you know, dramatically increase your performance, but you don't want to bottom out your blood sugars either. And that also depends on how you ate throughout the rest of the day. So these guys sitting in the gym chewing on a, you know, fruit snacks, that may not be necessary depending on what the situation is. But the idea there is that, you know, if you need carbs rapidly for something like, okay, I just had an intense bout of exercise. I broke down a bunch of muscle glycogen I need to replenish that right away, you know, or I went for a five hour run, you know, because I'm training for a marathon. Yeah, you want to take in something like a dextrose supplement or maybe a Gatorade, which has uh, various um, fast acting carbs in them to basically replenish that muscle glycogen. Or if you're on a diet, for instance, you know, you're operating probably on partially or fully, depending on what your diet is, um, depleted glycogen stores. So you're going to need glucose during your workout because you're, basically running on empty anyways. And you also don't want to have your blood sugar drop because that's going to kill your energy for that reason. All
0: right. So b- bottom line is for the most part, when you exercise, the carbs you're using are the carbs that have been stored as glycogen in your muscles for the most part. Typically, yeah. yeah. Typically, yes. Well, well, let's talk about fat because you've probably seen this as a dietitian in the past. Man, it's been going on for 20 years. First, there's the Atkins diet, And saying carbs are bad, they make you fat, eat more fat, and you'll lose weight uh, or lose body fat. Then it turned into the paleo diet, which pretty much said the same thing. And now we're seeing a new version, the carnivore diet, where people just eat meat and that's it. And so it's high protein, high fat. I mean, is there any truth to this idea that the more dietary fat you eat, that you'll burn, your body will become better at burning fat, so you'll burn stored body fat fat? More efficiently?
1: The short version of that answer is yes and no, and I'll explain why. So, yes, you become more efficient at burning fat. Now, why that happens, I'll explain it. So, each macronutrient oxidizes or burns differently than the other macronutrients. So, you have fat, carbohydrate, protein, alcohols, technically a macro, depending on who you ask, but typically fat is easily converted to fat. It doesn't have to go through any Alternate pathways to become stored body fat. Now, when you start overfeeding these macronutrients, your body responds to that in different ways. So, they've done studies on individuals that are following a mixed diet, you know, so carb, fat, protein's pretty even, nothing's extremely high or extremely low, you know, just a mixed diet. And they've basically overfed them carbs and overfed them fat and looked at the responses. The classic study I like to cite is Tracy Horton's study. I believe it was, uh, I want to say it was done in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. I don't have the uh, exact date, but they basically found that when you overfeed carbs to somebody on a mixed diet, they tend to burn more carbs. They see an increase in carbohydrate oxidation, which means you're burning more carbs because you're eating more carbs. So to put that simply, the more carbs you eat, the more carbs you burn. They stimulate their own oxidation. Just simply eating more of them makes you burn more of them. But then something else happens. As you eat more carbs, you start... Burning less fat because you have to burn off those carbs. So what they also looked at was the proportion of those calories is stored as fat. So basically what happens is you all the fat that you're eating gets stored as fat because you're burning off the carbs. So you know, we'll go back to that later in terms of you know practical considerations there. But when you look at what happens when you overfeed fat to somebody on a mixed diet, it's a very different response. Absolutely nothing happens. And why does absolutely nothing happen? Well, because you start storing that fat. You see what I mean? Fat does not fat does not stimulate its own oxidation; it just gets stored because that's the preferential fate of dietary fat so now, your questions in regards to well, you become a better fat burner if you're on a low fat diet or a low carb diet so just think about what we just talked about if you eat more carbs, you burn more carbs. so what if you restrict carbs down close to zero? you know nobody's gonna actually eat zero, but let's say you're eating twenty carbs a day the opposite happens. You burn, you become less efficient at burning carbs because you're not eating them. Right. And carbs stimulate their own oxidation. So your ability to burn carbs decreases. What ends up happening is you become a better fat burner. Your fat oxidation goes up and now you're eating a bunch of fat to compensate the calories you need. What happens there is you become more efficient at burning dietary fat. So this is what people forget physical activity and exercise and even lifting, you know, the way we lift for a couple hours a day, you know, few times a week you know assuming that you're not a professional athlete who's you know putting in an 8-hour day of physical activity and you're just you know your recreational person that lifts 1 to 3 hours a day depending on how into the activity they are you're typically not really burning that many calories performing physical activity you know so like these people that are on the treadmills you know trying to sweat and run for an hour at like you know get their heart rate racing i mean you're talking about what 400 calories extra a day you know i mean that's another you know, meal, depending on the person and what they like to eat. But we're not talking about, hey, we're doubling your caloric expenditure by running for an hour, or, you know, we're just roasting away fat by doing the linear progression. You know, that's not what's happening. You know, physical activity probably accounts for, or exercise, I should say, accounts for, you know, roughly 15% of what you expend as energy. So that means you have another 85% there that goes to basically you just being alive, you know, so... I said, what, about 15% for exercise, maybe 20 if you're, you know, an enthusiast and really going at it. And then about 10 to 15% goes to digesting and absorbing food. So just eating burns calories. It's called uh, diet-induced thermogenesis. So as you eat food, you end up burning calories and the digestion and absorption of those nutrients. So right there, you're about 30 to 35%. So that means about 65% of your energy expenditure is just you being there, being alive, breathing, living.
0: Well, so, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So, I want to point out there what you just said there is if you eat lower carb, you become less efficient at oxidizing carbs. And if you eat higher fat and you're to make up those calories you're not consuming from carbs, you become more efficient at burning dietary fat. So, you don't become more efficient at stored fat. So, the fat that's around, like that causes love handles and everyone's trying to get rid of, right? That's that doesn't become more efficient. No, that is determined
1: primarily by your resting metabolic rate.
0: So, but, but I mean, you see, like these amazing, like before and after pe- pictures of people. Like, oh, this is me before Paleo and before I was eating carbs. Here's me after I went to a low carb, high fat diet, and I lost a lot of body fat. It's so, like, what's going on there? If it's not the, that they became more efficient at burning stored fat, why did how did, why did they lose the body fat?
1: So, the last thing I said was, it, it depends on your resting metabolic rate. What I mean by that is, you need to Expend a certain number of calories over what you're burning, right? So, the classic rule is 3,500 calories. If you subtract 500 calories a day for seven days, so that's you know 3,500 calories, it's one pound of fat, you lose a pound of fat a week. Actually, that's not 100% accurate because there's variability there in terms of how much of a calorie restriction is necessary to lose a pound of fat that varies between individuals. But let's just go with that rule for the sake of explaining this. So, if you're resting metabolic rate. Let's say you burn 1,500 calories a day. Let's not even talk about resting. Let's talk about everything you do, exercise, living, eating, et cetera. You're burning 1,500 calories a day. And let's say you need to subtract 500 to lose a pound. You need to subtract 1,000 to lose two pounds. You need to subtract. So basically, you're eating zero calories to, to lose three pounds a week. Nobody's going to do that. So there's a math problem there if you think about it, right? You have to subtract a certain number of calories. And unless you're burning 6,000 calories at rest, most humans aren't going to lose more than a pound or two a week just because of the math there. So let's tie it back to your question about what's going on here. Well, they're eating keto or they're doing low carb and they're losing fat. Well, that's because fat loss, stored the loss of stored body fat is driven by being in a negative energy balance. That means the calories you take in are less than the calories you put out. And that doesn't matter if it's low carb or low fat or low protein or high protein. If you're expending X amount of calories and you're eating less than that, you're going to lose body fat regardless of how you break down those nutrients. Now, there's one caveat there. If you're trying to skew your weight loss towards body fat and away from muscle mass, that's where you have to keep the protein high. Gotcha. And lift, obviously.
0: Right, right. So what you're saying there is that we only, you, your body only dips into those fat stores, right? And we're talking like love handles, the thing that makes you doughy, only when there's a caloric deficit. That's at that point when it will start burning that, or. And you start losing body fat. That's 100% correct. Okay. And so, I mean, I guess that's why the paleo diet works. It's not that, you know, there's something magical about fat, eating fat. It's just that when you eat paleo, you probably tend to consume less calories because, you know, you're eating a lot of protein and fat, which are filling. And so you're not hungry all the time. And so you just eat fewer calories. Pretty much, yeah.
1: When you're on a high protein, high fat diet, you tend to, those two, those two macronutrients are more satiating than carbs. So if you eat a lot of fat, a lot of protein, you tend to be fuller. It's hard to overeat calories for a lot of people. Now there's some people with very slow metabolic rates that don't lose on those diets either. Nobody ever talks about them.
0: Right? Yeah. What? Yeah. What? I mean. So what? What causes that slow metabolic rate? Is it genetic or is it environmental? Do we know? For the most part, it's
1: genetic. But also, if you've and this doesn't apply to everyone. Because everything is genetic to some extent, to a large extent, actually. You know, And uh, if you gain and lose weight a bunch of times, your metabolic rate tends to adapt to that by lowering. So if you are an obese person and you just starve yourself and lose 50 pounds and regain the 50 pounds – your metabolic rate may be slower than it was before you initially lost the 50 pounds, even though you weigh the same. Weight cycling plays into it, but primarily, let's assume that that's not a factor. It's driven by genetics. Some people are going to burn 5,000 calories at rest. Some people are going to burn 1,200 calories at rest, and that's just the name of the game. Pick better parents.
0: Right, right. Well, what happens when we actually? Let's talk about that. What happens when you burn fat? Because, I, I, as you said, I think a lot of people they get on the treadmill and they think I'm sweating out the fat or I'm breathing like. What happens to the fat cell that make, do they disappear? Do they shrink? What happens there? Well, that's a good question. So the fat cell is
1: 87% triglyceride and that's what you're using as energy. So 87% of that fat cells triglyceride, the other 13% is your cell- cellular machinery. And you can't burn that off. That's part of your body, you know, that gets, you know, dies and gets replaced. So, you know, there's been confusion about that on the starting strength boards. You know, these guys are citing studies and not really interpreting the data correctly, but Every cell in your body turns over. That means it dies and gets replaced with a new one. But fat cells aren't, they're not an exception to that rule. You're turning them over, but you're not going to lose more fat cells than you're replacing. It's typically a one-to-one ratio. So when you're losing body fat, those fat cells are getting emptied essentially, but they're not actually losing the fat cells.
0: The strength con, you mentioned this kind of about this interesting study. I think you actually talked about this at starting strength coach association meeting about body fat and how like, Generally, so, you, so there's a one-to-one ratio, right? So a fat cell turns over, you know, it dies or whatever, and then it's replaced by an, a new fat cell. You sort to say that some, some people actually create more fat cells than, they, than they, they need or that, and that, you know, so even if they like make those fat cells shrink, right, by tapping into the stored fat storage, like they're not going to get much skinnier because they've, they've got more fat cells than they had when they were, you know, born or when they were a kid.
1: The total number of fat cells a human has is determined primarily by genetics. And then, you know, there's data suggesting that, you know, environmental stuff can influence that as well. So typically when you're born, you're probably adding most of your fat cells in that first year of life. You're proliferating them at a very rapid rate. And uh, that continues all the way to about 20 years of age. You're adding new fat cells and they're expanding to some extent. After about age 20, early adulthood, it's believed that that stopped happening and any increase in fat mass is due to an increase in fat cell size, not fat cell number. There's some data out there suggesting that some people might be able to add more fat cells and expand them at the same time. So this is probably like your 600 pound person. You know, how does that happen? So there might be some genetic things going on there that may be causing that person to add fat cells as an adult, but we don't know that for sure. Generally, for most people that are not your 600 pound person, you're typically getting an increase in fat cell size. So, to put that into context, when you're trying to lose weight, they did a, there were, this was a hot topic in the late 60s, early to mid 70s. They did a lot of studies on fat cells and they were doing adipose tissue biopsies where they, you know, took a piece of fat out of the person and, you know, determined their fat cell size, fat cell number, and saw how they responded to different things, primarily diet. So they were, There was one in particular that comes to mind where they got a group of women. And I mean, this wasn't the best research design. So I'm not saying that, you know, oh, this is fact, but they had a group of women back in the seventies. They told them, all right, lose as much weight as you can on any diet you want, and then come back to us when uh, you can't lose anymore. So they basically had everybody diet to a plateau. And then they took a sample of their fat cell before and after. And what they found was that there was a trend towards a measure of about point micrograms in weight, and nobody got below that. So there's, you know, the theory is that there's a certain size at which the fat cell cannot get any smaller, that when it empties out, it's roughly about 0.4 micrograms. Now, again, you know, this is not a fact based on this study, but, you know, it gives us some idea of what tends to happen for at least, you know, a group of people. So maybe some person might be able to get lower than that. Well, so what? The point is that there was no indication that fat cell number decreased in these individuals.
0: Okay, so I guess the, the the big takeaway from this then is when you're exercising, you're not burning fat, probably. you have to mean a caloric deficit to lose body fat, and there might be a certain point like there's a, a fat cell can only shrink so small, and that's about as low as it and then then some people, like the 600 pound person they're actually in, they've probably had an increase in number of fat cells and an increase in the size of those fat cells, and it's probably going to be really hard for them to lose body fat. Most likely. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about, I mean, the other thing we've had people on the podcast discussing, you know, endurance athletes, particularly talking about the, the wonders of, you know, low carb, high fat diets. And they, they talk about ketones and like how they're like this, like, like clean source of energy that, you know, allows you to run forever. And, you know, you think clear or whatever. So like, for those who aren't familiar, what are ketones and how does that power the body in just day-to-day living or even, say, strenuous exercise?
1: Well, sure. So ketones. So when you're on a mixed diet, you're primarily operating on carbs. The brain's preferred fuel are carbs because fat's a big, large molecule. It can't get up there. Your brain can't effectively use it. When you restrict carbohydrates and now you're relying on fat as an energy source, because you can't use fat, your body starts releasing these substances called ketones. And that's what you start using for energies. And basically it's um, the best way to explain these is ketones are a collection of fuels that your liver uses and your liver manufactures it. So your liver makes these ketone bodies and your brain is able to use that for energy when you're deprived of glucose. So let's say you're on a low carb diet and you're at like 20 grams a day, your brain's like, Hey, I need more glucose. And, you know, by the way, your brain typically needs around 130 grams of carbohydrates a day to function. Effectively, so when you're on a low carb diet, your liver basically starts making these ketones from stored fatty acids. It's like an emergency backup fuel to keep your brain functioning well. That's what happens. You're eating all these fats, and then you're not getting carbs to your brain to function. So then your liver's like, "Hey, let's take some of these fatty acids and make these little things called ketones, so that our brain can continue to work."
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So it's basically there for brain function. Doesn't do anything for like aerobic function. Like I've heard that. Like ketones are great for aerobic. Activities is that I guess that's not the case. No, so you know there's a an old paper
1: on keto adaptation and endurance exercise performance, and everybody loves to cite it. And what they found was that you know some of these cyclists or runners I can't remember offhand. It's been a while since I read the paper, but they were looking at endurance athletes that were on ketogenic diets, and they wanted they were making this case that hey maybe they just need to be in ketosis longer so they can keto adapt. And once they're keto adapted, you know, then they can operate on a low carb diet, use fat as an energy source, and it should be fine. But when you look closely at the data, what they typically don't say is that, hey, the guys who were the most keto adapted also had the poorest performance. So no, you typically can't use that for immediate energy.
0: So we talked about fat. Let's talk about carbs. So, you know, carbs have been getting a bad rap. They're evil. They make you fat they cause inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. D- are carbs that evil? Are they, are they, have they got, do they deserve the bad rap they've gotten? Uh, no. In short, no. First of all, what
1: foods are high in carbs? You know, Your grains are high in carbs. Your, uh, well, typically keto people eat vegetables, so I'm not going to include that in the list, but vegetables are very nutrient dense. They have a lot of micronutrients in there. Your fruits- have a lot of good micronutrients and also the, you know, high in fiber. So are the whole grains. So are things like beans, right? And fiber is good for lowering cholesterol levels. So there's a lot of benefit to fiber. It increases gastric motility. So it's good for your intestinal health, improves your good gut bacteria. So you get all that from carbs. You don't get that from eating meat and you know, protein primarily. So you get a lot of that from carbs. And depending on your carb
0: sources, some of them enhance absorption of certain nutrients better than others, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so yeah, carbs help with vitamin. Just like fat, fat helps with vitamin absorption. We need that for vitamin D, vitamin A. Carbs can help with vitamin absorption for these other vitamins. Yep, yep, yep. Do do carbs cause inflammation? Because that's the one thing people say, I, I, as soon as I eliminated carbs, like my skin cleared up, I've gotten rid of, you know, whatever digestive issues I've had. What's going on there when people say that? Or is there anything to that? I, I think we really got to think about
1: what type of carbs are these people talking about? What, what does an average American who's on a quote-unquote high-carb diet or a poor diet eat, right? Let's give some examples. Donuts, hamburgers, french fries, fast food, right? I feel like a lot of people have this one-dimensional view that, oh, I just cut the carbs out and I feel better, but hold on a second. Let's look at these foods I just listed. French fries are carb, right, but they're also fat because they're deep-fried potato chips, you you know, I think people would classify that as a carb, but those are also high in fat donuts. You know, you think about how sweet they are because of the sugar. Well, donuts are high in fat too. They're deep fried. So they're usually cutting out both carbs and saturated and trans fat from their diet is what's happening. And they're eating an overall, they're overall eating overall fewer calories. So I don't know, You know, this is one of the problems with nutrition research is I don't know exactly what people are eating. Nobody does. You know, a lot of our science is based off what people say they eat. And I was recently at a conference, I think it was a year ago, a little over a year ago, and this biostatistician gave a presentation on this, and he was talking about how we've been following data for the last 30 years on what people say they eat and making recommendations off of it. And you know, he Finished off his talk by saying, "This is an example of when something is not better than nothing, and until we have a better way of measuring it, we probably shouldn't even report on this." So, his name was David Allison, by the way, great researcher. It was it was great because it put it into context, right? So, you're saying all these things that people say, but are they really eating? bananas and oranges and apples and whole grains and beans all day? Probably not, right?
0: Right. So, okay, we talk about, so carbs, they're not they are not evil. We need them for performance. Like, but what happens to an individual who's doing strength training or even endurance training and they go low carb? How will that affect performance?
1: Well, here's what happens. when. Let's say you're an endurance athlete and you're what's called in steady state exercise for most of your activity until the very end when you have to do an all-out sprint. You're a marathon runner so your workouts are going to be several you know could be several hours long depending on where you're at in your training and you might do this every day well the thing people fail to realize is when you're uh, in steady state exercise you're not burning 100 percent of your calories from fat the steady state is not laying down on a couch you know you're running at a decent pace that you can sustain for you know several hours And you're burning both fat and carbohydrates, and if you keep doing that long enough, eventually you deplete your glycogen stores, and you can't effectively run. Your blood glucose levels drop, your energy levels drop, and if you're actually racing, you're not going to do very well at the last
0: leg of the race when you need to sprint. And for weightlifters, I guess you just you 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 get weak, basically.
1: Uh, that's the end result, but it's kind of a similar concept. So lifting's a little bit tricky. So. What you want to think about is none of these energy systems are 100% working by themselves at any point in time. The other, all three of them are working together. So just to review back to earlier, you have your ATP phosphocreatine for explosive activities. Then you go into what's called glycolysis, where you're using primarily glucose. And then you go into oxidative metabolism, where you're using a little more fat. But at no point are you just using one. They're all always operating. Just depending on what your activity is, you're, um, you might use one more than the other. So in the weight room, for instance, yeah, you're doing, let's say you're doing A set of five, right? Let's say you're doing five sets of five to put this into better context. So you have to unrack the bar, you got to walk out, you do your first rep, second rep gets slower, third rep gets slower by the time it's all said and done. It might take 10 to 15 seconds, maybe 20, depending on how heavy it was. So by the end of it, you start tapping into glycolysis, and now you're breaking down muscle glycogen in that single set of five. And then you're going to follow it up in a few minutes, right? So you still have to replenish ATP, phosphocreatine, so you can use that again in the next. Uh, set and if you're not resting long enough, you're not going to be able to do that, which is why it's going to be harder. And by the end of it, you've done 25 reps with this at this high intensity. The sets tend to take longer and longer, so you instead of continuously breaking down glycogen like you would in like an endurance activity, it's more incremental because you're breaking up these sets and essentially they're like intervals. You know, so by the end of a heavy squat workout, you do five fives and you do five fives on the bench, and then you know you pull your deadlift set of five, maybe do some back offs you have broken down a good chunk of glycogen. I mean, you're not going to be glycogen depleted unless you're in a low-carb, on a low-carb diet. So that puts it all in the context to answer your question. If you're on a low-carb diet, you now don't have enough fuel to sustain all those sets. So what I've typically seen when people aren't eating enough, the first set goes fine, and then things start to go to hell after like set two or three. Yeah, just the same thing. It just happens a little bit differently. And since you're not breaking, you're not using as much during a lifting session, as you would during an aerobic session, it just kind of builds up over time. And after a couple of workouts, let's say, you know, you just started low carb on Monday, you might get away with Monday's workout, because you still have some glucose stores in there. Maybe Tuesday, you're going to break down some more by workout three, you're not you're just like you said, you're gonna feel like crap, because you can't power through it, you know, and then you're in a negative energy balance, too. So you're not producing as much
0: ATP either because of overall calories. Oh, so that's, a, okay, you mentioned ATP. I want to go there. So how does our body create more e- a- ATP? Is that where creatine comes into play?
1: Creatine and ATP are two separate things. So ATP is your body's energy source. It's the mean, everything you eat, like carbs, fat, protein, all of that's converted into ATP. And it happens at different rates and you get different amounts depending on the macro. So you'll get a lot of ATP from a gram of fat. Obviously it's nine calories per gram, but uh, you can't readily access it because it takes longer to, you know, Break down, digest, and absorb a fat versus a carb; it's more readily available.
0: So, beginning when you laid out sort of how our body partitions macronutrients as we consume them, you made you made the point that as you consume more carbs, you burn more carbs, right? Your body becomes more efficient. Is that why, like, when you eat a lot of carbs, like you start feeling hungrier, like more? Like, I've noticed that when I eat higher carb, like, man, I'm like, I'm hungry again, and I just ate like an hour ago. Is that what's going on? It's like my body has gotten really good at burning those carbs. So like it's like, hey, give me some more carbs. That yeah, that's part of the reason. So
1: each macronutrient has a thermic effect, which means that they the digestion and absorption of fat, carb, and protein is different. So protein is the highest thermic effect of food, which is another benefit to a high-protein diet that's not muscle-related. If you eat a diet higher in protein, hypothetically, you're going to burn more calories than if you eat a diet lower in protein. How much? Not really a huge amount, but it just takes more energy to break down and absorb and digest protein. Carb would be second, and then fat would be last because fat just gets stored very easily. Your body likes efficiency. Let's just put it that way. You know, Let's say that... Uh, you're on a low fat diet, right? And you're eating a bunch of carbs, you know, you're feeling hungry all the time. Well, let's also not forget that carbs have half the calories of fat. So you have to eat twice the amount of food in terms of volume, food weight to uh, get that number of calories. So to give you an example, there's a 2001 study by a scientist named David Jenkins, and they were looking at the effects of very high fiber diets on cholesterol levels so it wasn't a weight loss study or anything but what was cool about this study was i mean they fed the people they had them stay there overnight and uh, actually i'm not sure if they stayed overnight or if they just prepared the food and they picked it up but they provided these people with the food the interesting interesting thing about it was they reported the grams the weight in grams of each item that they gave the person on the menu and they had two groups one group ate 100% of their carbs from starch and one group ate 100% of their carbs from fruits and vegetables. The group that ate hundred percent of their carbs from fruits and vegetables, they were on a 2,700 calorie diet. I believe 60% of it was carbohydrate. Roughly 20% of it was fat. And then about 15 to 20% protein, just ballpark figures. And it was 2,700 calorie diet. So now let's think about this. 65% of that 2,700 calories is going to come from carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates have to be a hundred percent from fruits and vegetables, because that was the, um, that was a treatment condition. So if you do the math on that, that's 405 carbs, only fruits and vegetables. So try to picture what that looks like.
0: Yeah. Not, it looks like a big giant salad bowl.
1: Yeah. So they actually, when you total up the, the weight of all the food items on that menu, it was 11 pounds of food. And needless to say, their bowel movements did change.
0: <laughs> if we eat more carbs, become more efficient at burning them. Like, At what point is like, like too many carbs, too much, and then your body starts storing that as fat. So the the term
1: for that is de novo lipogenesis. And that that basically means when you're converting a uh, macronutrient that's not fat into stored body fat. And it's a metabolically inefficient process, which means that your body doesn't like to do it. And you have to overfeed carbs while keeping fat low to theoretically pull this off. So let's say that you're on a 20 gram of fat diet, right? And you're trying to get fat from eating carbs because this would be the best way to do it, right? If you're not getting enough fat in, you can't store it. So let's try to think about what that looks like. 20 grams of fat and 500 carbs. So that's 2000 calories from carbs, right? And uh, you're probably getting protein in there too. I mean, I don't think it's going to be tough to accomplish, but to better answer that question they've done they've, they've uh, published papers on this and it's the estimated number i believe is 125 to 175% of the calories you need your total daily calories to achieve that so and then you also have got to you gotta factor in fat too because you're going to store the fat first so let's say that you're let's say you burn 2000 calories that means you have to eat 2000 calories in carb right so That's about 500 calories or 500 carbohydrates that you have to eat. And then you're also going to store the fat first, right? So let's say you drop your fat to 20. So you store those first 20 grams and then you have to eat basically pounds upon pounds of food to accomplish what you're talking about. And uh, I think in the study where they were able to induce it, I think it took that many carbs. So let's say like five to 600 carbs. And I don't remember what the fat intake was. And it was like a fraction of a fraction of a pound of fat came from the carbohydrates based on what they were using to measure it.
0: okay, so one thing I want to point out with what you just said about fat gain when you consume you only gain fat whenever I guess what I'm make sure I'm getting this right You only gain fat when you eat a caloric surplus, and it's that fat that you've eaten will Be or consumed will be converted into stored body fat first. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah. So, pretty much first and foremost, you have to be eating over maintenance for this to happen. You have to be in a caloric surplus to induce fat gain. So, assuming that you're eating more energy than you're expending, the first thing that's going to happen is whatever fat calories you're taking in, that's going to go to your stored fat first before you do any type of de novo lipogenesis. And again, you have to. Eat a lot of carbs or a lot of protein theoretically to induce that. But let's just assume you're a typical American on a high fat, high carb diet. You're eating, you know, three, four hundred carbs a day and 200 grams of fat you're going to store the fat first and that's going to accumulate over time
0: we're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors all right part of your overall health is getting a good night's sleep and getting a good night's sleep requires that you have a good mattress and casper's here to help revolutionize your sleep so casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time they've got three mattress models the original casper the wave and the essential all perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry not to mention they got a breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature temperature throughout the night. And here's the best part. It's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, size box with free shipping returns in the US and Canada. And you get to sleep on this thing 100 nights risk-free for a sleep on a trial. If you don't like it, you can send it back. You spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. We've sent our managing editor, Jeremy Anderberg, host manager manage the podcast, a mattress. And this is what he said about the mattress. He says, my wife and I have slept deeper, longer, and less fitfully than with any other mattress we've had. I don't even notice her tossing and turning like that, like I used to. It's also ruined us to sleep in any other bed because ours is just too dang comfortable. So if you're ready to try Casper out, got an offer for you. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com manliness and using manliness at checkout. Again, $50 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper." Asper.com slash manliness and using manliness to check out. Terms and conditions apply. Also by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through its site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great Match the right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com/slash/manliness. Again, ZipRecruiter.com/slash/manliness. If you are a small business owner or a hiring manager at a corporation, you need to try this bad boy out. ZipRecruiter.com/slash/manliness. The smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. All right. So, like the, the takeaway there then is like people get fat not because of carbs. Probably it's probably they're eating they're eating like fatty carbs they're eating like you said hamburgers pizza what ding dongs whatever like it's like carbs that are like i think you've said this phrase they're uh, fortified with fat yeah essentially yeah i say that our american diet is very much fortified with
1: fat the easiest way to essentially get fat if you if your goal was to you know gain body fat would be on a high carb high fat diet because what do we know now you're going to burn off the carbs you're going to store the fat So if you're eating a high-carb, high-fat diet, you're on the fast track to, you know, gaining a bunch of body fat. That's why Oreos are so lovely for that, you know?
0: What about protein? Does protein ever get converted to fat, or is that the same thing with carbs? Like, it's just, it's inefficient, so your body doesn't like to do it. it. Your body likes
1: efficiency, but protein, good luck trying to eat that much. I mean, you'll be full before you're even a quarter of the way there.
0: Right. And another thing, I mean, I think it's so fascinating about the body is like, again, it likes efficiency and, you know, it requires like certain, like it requires glucose or glycogen to, you know, to think and do these other functions. One of the things I've read in like sort of the high fat, low carb blogosphere books is that one problem some folks run into is they're eating a high fat, high protein diet, low carb that like, I guess the, like the body can like convert protein into glycogen in some weird way. And so you end up like getting out of ketosis because you ate too much protein.
1: Sure. So what you're talking about there is another fancy scientific term called gluconeogenesis. And that's basically where you're, you're converting non-carbohydrate macronutrients into glucose. It could happen with fat too, although that's even hard, It's very hard to do, but it's when you're eating, let's say you're on a low carb diet that's high in fat, high in protein, and you're eating a ton of protein and you're not utilizing it. Protein can be converted into glucose a lot easier than fat via this process. Your body's, again, your body likes efficiency. You know what I mean? So you're, yes, that could happen. You can definitely start converting protein into glucose if your body needs it. That's why I noticed some of these uh, keto people, they'll restrict protein too and just try to get as much of it from fat as possible. Right.
0: And then, that's not good for gains. You need, you need. Protein to build muscle, man. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, okay. I mean, we've talked a lot, and, and I mean, I'm. This goes to show, like, why there's so much confusion about nutrition, because like it's a, a relatively, it's a complex process going on. we not just a process, processes going on all at the same time. So let's let's recap some of this, some of this theoretical stuff, and then we can get into sort of the practical uh, stuff. So I guess big takeaways that I got: we need protein, carbs, and fat for functioning carbs are good we need carbs for high intensity exercise thinking like our brain requires it the more carbs we eat we get more efficient at carbs fat like when we consume fat like we don't get if we consume a lot of fat we get better at uh, burning that dietary fat that fat we consume not stored fat
1: as long as carbs are low as long as carbs are
0: low as long as carbs are low and the other takeaway is i mean if you want to lose weight you have to be in a caloric deficit. That means you have to eat fewer calories than you are burning.
1: Absolutely. Yep. That's correct.
0: Okay. This is, this is good. This is, this is useful. So let's talk about, okay, how do we, knowing this and taking this and applying it to, to different you know, health goals that people might have. So sort of broadly speaking, when you program nutrition for a client, what's your approach? Do you, is it like counting calories, macros? Is it some sort of like, you know, zone body diet? Like What do you, what's your, what's your big picture approach? Generally, this is going to depend on the person. So I, I like
1: macros. I like meal plan and it depends on who I'm working with. So if you have a guy and this comes back to just being practical and individualizing your care. So if you have an individual who is on a pretty regimented schedule every single day. and doesn't have much variation there. A meal plan tends to work good, you know? And uh, if you have somebody who is traveling all the time or works all day, one day, and then, you know, has time spread out the next day, I like macros better, like total macros. But um, above all, basically the overarching theme is, I like to figure out their macros first. And the way I do that is I have everybody track whether I'm going to put them on a meal plan or not. After that week is over, I'll look at what they're normally eating because I want to get some idea of their usual intake. Obviously, what people write down isn't necessarily what's going on, but it's something you know and this we're not doing a research paper here we're working with humans so in this case it is better than nothing because i need something to work with them on and uh based on what they give me then i'll reconfigure things typically you'll the average person you're going to see high fat high carb low protein and then you got to reconfigure those macros now if i'm putting them on a meal plan i'm going to give them a schedule I'll be like okay eat this much carb fat and protein for this meal and then eat every 3 to 5 hours depending on what their schedule is if you can't at this time move it to this time and uh that'll be what i do for that person for The other person who doesn't want all that structure and likes to, you know, fly by the seat of their pants, I'll say, okay, you need to get this total amount of carb, this total amount of fat, this total amount of protein, this total amount of fiber throughout the whole day. Don't really care how you break it up. Just try not to do it all in one meal, one or two meals. Try to get at least three meals, you know? And uh, that's pretty much how I start somebody. I guess the real uh, thing I'm trying to communicate here is there's no 100% accurate way to figure out where somebody is at baseline. You know, you just have to get some rough estimate based on either what they're giving you or some validated equation and then work from there. So that's where having a coach is really helpful because it's really how it becomes individualized, you know, I can give you something that, you know, a cookie cutter template that I just hand over to you and you run off with, and you know, if you're experienced with dieting, you're going to probably do great with it, you know, because you've been through it enough times to know your body. But if you're taking a, a raw novice dieter, for lack of a good word, and you give them something that's cookie cutter, they're probably going to mess it up and uh, not do what's written on there and have a bunch of problems. And that's where the coaching becomes very helpful because you get to know how the person's body responds and kind of build around that.
0: So it sounds like one of the approach you mentioned, like with the macro, it's like, that's, if it fits your macros, And I think that's what you've been having me do. You just said, here's these macros. You haven't really given me a meal plan and um, just, just like hit these macros, track them with, I use my fitness pal. And then I report to you sort of like how I did that week.
1: Yeah, sure. I do that for a lot of people. And that's te- typically my default, because it's more laid back for some people. But what I'm finding is, you know, a lot of people, there's other people out there that like structure too, I'd say it's probably half and half, but I usually start with macros, because it's all based on macros. So I always start with total macros, because it's simple, it's easier to wrap your mind around, you know, and then as the person goes on, if they're cool with that, you stick with it. If they're not, you say, Okay, here's a little more structure. But ultimately, both approaches depend on macros and total calories, you know?
0: So let's talk about fitness goals or, you know, nutrition goals. So I think the, the the same, I've heard this kind of thrown around, like 80% of weight loss is diet and 20% is exercise. So diet's a big key. So like losing body fat is a big goal for a lot of people. Let's say, let's start with someone who's like, you know, who's really overweight, right? We're talking above what, above 20%, 20, what, what, what's like, what do we consider like obese in terms of body fat?
1: I'd say once you start getting over 30% body fat, you're probably in pretty okay. bad shape. Cause
0: yeah. Let's say, okay, let's say you're over 30% body fat. Like what's your sort of broad, again, again, it's going to be personalized individual for each person, but like broadly speaking, like what's your recommendation on calories and macronutrients?
1: So if you have a 250 pound guy who's always been 250 pounds and tends to be, you know, what we would call a non-responder, to, you know, weight loss. Typically, most of those guys, if let's say he's lifting weights, he's strong, you know, he's done the program for a couple years, you know, got his squat up, got his deadlift up, wants to lose weight. Typically, I'd start somebody like that. Let's get the fat at 100 for the high end to start because most people come in here eating like, you know, over 100 grams of fat a day. So putting them on like 60 or 70 in the beginning is going to freak them out, you know. So when I get these guys that are used to eating a lot of fat, I'll say, okay, let's go to 100 on fat. And then uh, I'll typically put their carbs somewhere around 250 and protein around 200, 225. And for various reasons, not because they need that much protein to build muscle. That's not why I'm doing that. So, you know, just to be clear, you don't need that much protein to build muscle mass, but protein has other functions. So it helps keep you full. And during a diet, that's important. So I tend to go higher on the protein for that. Um, two, it also helps with uh, glycemic response. So it helps you get stable blood glucose and insulin levels. Okay. And,
0: like, and what... Like how much weight should they be shooting for a week losing? Is it like one to two pounds? Yeah, typically one to two pounds. I mean, if they lose more and they're still able to train, I don't say,
1: oh my God, let's eat more food. But if they lose more and they're getting gassed in their first week, then I say, okay, hold on, we need to eat a little bit more.
0: Right. Okay. So it's gonna be so yeah, you're gonna also because this is assuming that the, the person you're working with is also training with weights. And so you're also not only are you taking into account, okay, we want we want to lose weight, lose body fat, but we also want to make sure your performance stays you know, good as well.
1: Yeah. And that's where it gets, that's where the, you know, the term, I love this term, well-balanced diet. That's where that becomes more important when you're dealing with an athlete or somebody who is doing some sort of intense activity that they care about, that they want to preserve their function in. So the extreme diets don't tend to work on that, on that front. So you have to keep the carbs high, reasonably high, so that you can still train and you have to keep the protein at a certain level. And then bait, that's where, you know, the only one you have left is fat. And that's why we tend to gravitate towards low fat diets for lifters, because it's not really contributing much to performance, if anything. So that's where we start to cut first. And uh, I don't know if you've, you've done both, I'm, I'm assuming low carb and low fat, right? Right. With low carb, you're going to feel symptoms of weakness a lot faster than low fat.
0: Right. No. Yeah. I experienced that. I think before I started working with you, I did, you know, when i First started training, I did high fat, low carb, so I thought I was going to lose some weight. And like, I just what ended up happening was I got really weak and I got fatter, and I didn't feel good. And <laughs> I, I told Matt I was like I need to not do this. And I went to like a higher carb, lower fat, and started feeling great. The lift started going up, and I started losing weight, which was I thought really counterintuitive based on all the information I had been consuming for the past five years about how nutrition works and whatever. And I imagine as someone's losing weight, like I'm talking about our 250-pound guy, that as he loses weight, you also need to keep reducing calories to keep the weight drive weight loss going.
1: Sure, yeah, of course. So I think you experienced that, you know, this past week. Eventually you get to a point where you can't lose more. Yeah, depending on how much weight you have to lose and who you are, you know, you might start getting weaker, feeling like crap, et cetera. But the only way to continue driving additional weight loss is to cut back. And, um, I take a different approach. I like to take is let's say you got a guy who's 300 pounds and he loses the first 30 or 40 pounds, no problem. And then he's like, Oh crap, my, I'm missing my bench press, feeling hungry all the time. I'm having dreams about food and you're getting all these psychological symptoms that kind of, you know, start arising. That's when I say, Whoa, hold on, buddy. Let's put the brakes on. You know, we're going to up your calories, get you into a maintenance phase and uh, just have you train for a while and not worry about fat loss. And from there, we'll do that. And then, you know, after, depends on the person. I like three months. I find that some clients, they want to just go right back to it. So we'll do a month, but in a perfect world, I like three to six months because it gives you enough time away from dieting, allows you to eat, you know, live a reasonably normal life for a while before you go right back to it. And so let's say, you know, our 300 pound guys, 260 now, and then six months later, he's been training, got his strength back up a little bit. Now we're going to take him from 260 down to 220. And then at 230, he starts saying, oh, I'm hungry again. And this is happening. So I stopped at 230 instead. I said, OK, we're not going to go to 220, we'll go to 230. And uh, we'll stop again. And then maybe a few months down the line, try it a third time. And this approach seems to work in terms of you know keeping the performance together during a period of fat loss.
0: No, that's really interesting because like, I think. Yeah, I think when most people think fat loss, they think they're just gonna do it in one fell swoop. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna transfer like you know, the, the headlines you see on the magazines that when you check out at the grocery store, lose 30 pounds of body fat in two months. <laughs> like it sounds like that you you're you don't do that because that could probably just destroy you psychologically. And also, you know, it can hurt your training as well.
1: Yeah, if you start losing it rapidly, first of all, it's gonna mess with your it's going to mess with your head. You're going to have psychological problems that arise from that. Two, it's going to mess up your training. And three, you're more likely to gain the weight back because you went on a severe, crazy restriction that you couldn't sustain, you know?
0: I imagine as you get lower in body fat, right? Let's say you're a guy, you're like in the 18% body fat range, right? So you're you're looking pretty jacked, but you're not shredded yet, right? And say like, that's your goal. You want six pack abs. Does it get really hard to like lose or, I guess we're not losing, we're shrinking those fat cells. Does it become harder as you get lower in body fat?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The leaner you get, the harder your body fights back. And it's a survival mechanism there. And I'm always telling people this I'm like, after a certain point, your body's going to fight back. And why does that happen? Because historically, you know, we have mechanisms in place to protect us for during times of famine. And one of those mechanisms is you store a bunch of body fat so that if there's no food available, you have some energy to use, right? Once you get to a certain point of fat loss and you're trying to get, you know, jacked and tan, your body's like, well, hold on a second. That's my savings account. And you're trying to empty it out completely. I don't want to do that. And then you start getting, you know, an upregulation of hunger hormones. So now you're hungry all the time. You're getting cravings. Your brain stops functioning correctly. Lose your sex drive. It's basically your body's way of saying, "I'm not getting rid of this. You're not cleaning my bank account out."
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I we we talk about my experience working with you. So I started working with you about two months ago. Yeah, about yeah, two months ago. So before that time, I'd been kind of Matt. Kind of gave me Matt, my barbell coach, starting strength coach. Kind of gave me general recommendations. Go. I, I started working with you after I did the last meet in March in Wichita Falls, and before that time, I was eating like. 350 grams of carbs, 220 grams of protein, and 70 grams of fat, 80 or 90 grams of fat. So I was, it was about 3,500 to 3,600 calories. And I was doing that right for the meat. Cause I was just like focusing on getting big and strong, right? I wanted to perform well. I weighed out at the meat at 219. So I just got under that cutoff on the the weight and I told Matt, it's like, you know what? I'm. I was, and I got fat. I think my 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 waist was up. I can't remember my, my initial measurement. I think it was like 37 inches when I reported to you the first time. Yeah, that sounds right. 36. Yeah, yeah. and I said, yeah, hey, I want to take a break from this and maybe you know trim down a bit. And so you gave me the recommendation. We we went down to 2,500 calories, about. So we were at uh, 250 carbs. 250 protein. You increase the protein to help with that satiation. And we went 60 grams fat. Things were like, I mean, I was telling you, man, this is awesome. Like I was doing great, feeling great for the first um, I would say, like, I would say six weeks. Performance really didn't suffer too much in, in during training. But like this week, I think like I hit a wall. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I sent you an email. I was like, dude, I'm hungry all the time. And I like got to the point it was like, it was distracting. Like during my work, I couldn't get work done. Cause I was just like, I'm hungry. I got to eat something. And I would go to bed hungry and I hated it. And I was like, but, but I mean, I made progress. Like I went from 37 inch waist, I think yesterday measured at 33 and three fourths inch waist. And I went from 219 weighing out at 29. Well, I mean, here's the thing: when you weigh out, for for people who don't know, when you do a a, a strength or a, a weightlifting competition, like all day, you're just consuming carbs and water, you know, because you're, you're again, you want that just that that because it's a, it's it's a really taxing day. You're lifting all day, doing these really heavy single lifts, so you need that glucose to keep you powered, so you don't bottom out. So yeah, you store a lot of water and glycogen. The next day, I weigh 225 pounds. And then just going back to my normal diet, I went back to 219 because uh, I, I shed all that water, right? Yeah. But yeah, so I went from 219 to 208, which is pretty like in two months, I eight pounds and lost about four inches on my waist. But like, and I was like, man, maybe I can go for like six pack. And then like this week I was like, no, it's not worth it. I, and I asked, she's like, is this going to be like, is this, is this going to get harder? Okay. And if so, like, I don't know if it's worth it, right?
1: Yeah. So that's the thing, you know, like I was, I was talking to somebody this morning, a client of mine that was visiting in town. I went to breakfast with her. and we We're talking about that. And I'm like, at a certain point, fat loss becomes like a sport and there are risks associated with it. You know, you have the risk of injury when you're under the bar, you know, musculoskeletal injury. When you're dieting really hard, you have the risk of anxiety, depression, uh, low energy, decreased libido. Like these are all risks of continuing down that path. And it's, I like to relate it to sport, you know, because it comes to a certain point where, okay, your dieting is no longer about health. Now you have some sort of a competitive goal there, whether you're actually competing in bodybuilding or not is irrelevant. Like there are people that chase, you know, a 600 pound deadlift that never go on the platform, you know, that's still a competitive endeavor, you know? So I tell people, I'm like, if you're trying to get jacked and tan, that is a bucket list slash competitive endeavor. And it's no longer about health at that point. So, what you have to understand is yes, you're going to feel hungry. You're going to be dreaming about food. Your sex drive might go down. You know, you might lose energy. You might not be able to train. You might lose weight off the bar. Like, all these negative things could start happening. And for some people, there's long term consequences to that if they do that too much. And then for others, it's fine you know again genetics but yeah so then the question becomes is it really worth it why are you you know if you really want to see your abs and that's an important goal to you then yeah push through it but these things are going to happen so like i went through that like a few years ago couple it's been 2 years now wow i wanted to get down pretty low because i had been so heavy for a while and it uh, wasn't serving me i wasn't lifting more i was the amount of weight gain that i had put on didn't you know the weight on the bar didn't justify it so I wanted to take myself down and I wanted to take myself way down. So I got myself down to like 11.8% body fat. This still, this is not bodybuilder levels. That's like bodybuilders are 5% ish, you know, if you're not DEXA. And, uh, even at that point I was like hungry all the time, dizzy. I'd go to the gym, I'd do my squats and I'd see spots afterwards. And, you know, that's, again, that was at that point, it wasn't about health. You know, I it, it stopped being about health once I got under 15% body fat, you know, it's or even, you know, I would even argue 20, you know? At that point, it was about, I want to get really lean because I've always wanted to do it. And I want to see if it's possible. And, you know, for me, it fortunately was for some people that may not be something that's possible without possibly surgery, you know, but, uh, yeah, at that point I knew it wasn't about health and even the lifting I was doing was not about health. You know, I was, you know, I'm not a very impressive lifter, but the amount that I lift is not necessary for me to be functional and healthy. And I do that competitively. In terms of I compute myself on it, I want these PRs, I want these numbers. So the same thing goes for leanness. You know, at, at a certain point, your leanness no longer becomes about health, and you know you are putting your safety on the line to some extent.
0: Right. So you decide if it's worth. I decide it's not worth it. Right. I was like, ah, yeah. I'd rather. <laughs> I want to get that six hundred pound deadlift, and I'm okay. Like I'm healthy. I look good right now, and I'm happy. And I just don't. I'm just not shredded, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, no, so we, we've been, we've been talking uh, losing weight. so I guess the, the thing is there, I, I, I like the big takeaway from there is that you if, you're, if your goal is to lose weight and maintain performance, whether it's you're an endurance athlete or a strength athlete, to do it in stages. Like don't try to do it all at, in one fell swoop. Do it for two months, take a break for three months, then go at it again. let's talk Let's talk about gaining weight. There's some because there's some guys who are listening to this. They're like the uh, stereotypical, you know, Charles Atlas ad, like this, you know, 90 pound weakling or whatever. <laughs> like they get sand kicked, like they want to get, they want to put on some mass and be bigger. But I, I've, you know, I've got friends who are like, like, no matter how much they eat, like I don't gain weight. So what's going on with those guys and what do they need to do to gain weight?
1: I guess I'll talk about what I did and uh, how I apply this to other people. So, like I said, a couple of years ago, You know, I got myself down to like 11% body fat. I worked with Nick Shaw of Renaissance Periodization. He helped me with that. And then afterwards, I just kept training, went on my own, been kind of just doing my own thing with diet. And I kind of took that knowledge to kind of explain what I just did. Then later on, I was like, okay, I need to get stronger. My programming is all over the place. And then I hired Reynolds. And uh, he started doing my strength coaching, and I just did my own thing with diet. That's also when I sat in, um, in an obesity class here at ASU. Which I recommend to anybody in the state of Arizona that you know has access to ASU and can take a graduate level elective. There's this obesity and health class taught by Glenn Gaser. He's an obesity expert, and that's where I learned a lot of this stuff about nutrient oxidation. So as I'm sitting in that class taking all this information in, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I'm like, I need to gain muscle mass, and I want to skew that weight gain towards muscular body weight and away from fat weight. So if any more carbs cause you to burn more carbs and store less fat, then what if I just pull the fat back, ramp the carbs up, and just keep training? What would happen? So I tried that. I tried a very low fat diet initially. Reynolds thought I was insane because I was doing, I, I got all the way down to 15 just to experiment. Didn't last very long, but I think the lowest I saw on my tracker was 15. And then I ramped my carbs up to 400. And seriously, it was like I took speed. The next time I lifted, my squat just got dramatically easier it was like it was awesome you know so I kept doing that and um, over time this has been what I've been with Matt for 16 months over time I've gained about 13 12 12 13 pounds and uh, my deadlift went from 440 to 500 my squat went from 370 to 420 I don't care what rip says it was still that's my that's my base my percentages off of yeah 370 to 420 and my um my bench went from I think 269 to 291 and my press is back at 205. Although I had 211, I kind of, I start to faint when I'm pressing. I can't figure out how to control that, but I faint halfway up and I can't seem to lock anything out over 205 without passing out. So right now it's 205. Now to, to you know be clear on that, I had lifted, two, I pressed 210 at 205 before, I benched 290 at 205 before, but these uh, squat and deadlifts, these are big PRs. Like I never hit that when I was fat. These happened when I was lean. And anyways, so my whole my whole thing about it was I'm like, okay, it takes, muscle takes a long time to gain. You don't gain it in a week or two weeks or even a month. I mean, yeah, in a month, probably you start building some muscle. And I've been trained because I've been lifting weights for almost well, like 19 years, I think. I started in 1999. And I've been squatting and deadlifting, I've been squatting for about 16 years and I've been deadlifting for about five. I mean, I've always done, the lifts that I've trained consistently are the squat and the bench and the pull-up. I mean, you know, I've mean, i been doing that consistently since I started lifting weights. I added the deadlift and the press about five years, you no, know, eight years ago now, wow. And uh, so I, I bring all that up because I'm a trained lifter, I'm not a novice, you know? So the more trained you become, the less muscle you're gonna gain over time. Eventually you stop gaining muscle mass, right? the way i looked at it was i'm just going to train focus on pushing my weight up my on the bar you know i'm not going to worry about my body weight i'm going to let my body weight do what it does i'm going to eat enough so that i'm getting through these workouts and setting new prs and the reason i say that is because what drives muscle gain so like i always get these questions from guys saying oh uh i want to mass can you give me a diet to mass and i'm like yeah but what's your training looking like you know i don't like giving i don't like giving people mass diets and I'm not coaching because if you're not stimulating the muscle correctly, you're not going to gain muscle. No, you know, it's like saying, okay, I'm going to give you a diet. You're going to follow it and gain muscle mass without lifting weights. I mean, the diet supplements the training. The training is the stimulus. So when I'm talking to guys about gaining weight, the first thing I say is either work with me or work with a strength coach that's competent because the stimulus for building muscle is the strength training. You have to get stronger at it over time. So that gets into a whole nother, you know, ball of wax when you're talking about programming. But my uh, whole approach with it is if you're performing more over time, let's say you're lifting more weight six months from now, you know, for a set of 10, a set of five, a set, it really doesn't matter. I mean, the, the research says it. Us as coaches have seen it. If you train eights and get stronger at eights, you're going to get bigger muscles. If you train fives and get stronger at fives, you're going to get bigger muscles. If you do even twelves, you'll get bigger muscles as long as you're improving within that rep range. The bottom line is the training stimulates the growth. Then you have to eat to facilitate that. So you got to figure, okay, if you're gaining 15 pounds in a month and you're a trained lifter like myself, I'd say probably 95% of that's going to be fat. So you, it's going to be slower. The more advanced you become, the slower the weight gain is going to be and the less body weight you're going to gain as a trained lifter versus a novice. You know, that guy I, gains 10 pounds in a month. Maybe half of that's muscle. You know, maybe he maybe gains five pounds of muscle in his first month. Or I should say lean mass is more like it because a novice... They're going to increase blood volume. They're going to increase glycogen stores. That's going to increase their lean weight. They'll probably start building muscle around week six, and then that'll continue over time. So in like a three to six month period, a novice might gain five to 10 pounds of muscle, depending on how well that person responds to strength training. To just tie it all together, the bottom line is your training must facilitate growth in order for the diet to be meaningfully effective.
0: And I think a lot of times these guys who say they have a hard time gaining weight, and they say they eat a lot, they probably don't actually eat a lot because they're not tracking. They just think they do, but they, they really don't. With the guys that say they eat a lot, again, you're dealing with self-reported
1: dietary intake You know, when something is not better than nothing. <laughs> In this case, what I found, my cousin was one of these guys. I eat so much and I can't gain weight. He was like six foot, 150 pounds, and I got him up to 217. So- that's an interesting thing happened there. You know, like we said, eventually you can't lose weight. There was a point where your body will stop gaining weight. And for him, it was 217. No matter how much he ate, he couldn't gain any more weight. And this guy was committed, man. But in the beginning, when I gave him recommendations on food, he got, he gained like 20 pounds, I think, you know, 25 pounds. He was like 180, maybe. 185. And then he just started bitching that, oh, it's too much food. I can't eat like this. Ah, and then we stopped talking for a couple months. He came back around and he's like, all right, I want to try and do this right, you know? So I was like, okay. So it took this guy 555 or 575 carbs, 175 grams of fat, and I think 250 grams of protein for him to get his weight up to 218. And I mean, the guy did great. What I do mean? He scored-
0: how many calories is that? That's like 4,000.
1: I think he was like between four and five. It was a like creeping towards 5,000 calories a day. And what that. Wow. Yeah. And uh, what that looked like was like, for instance, he's like, yeah, when I lift, he's like, I put a cup of sugar in my protein shake, you know, cause he needs all these carbs and he puts a <laughs> cup of sugar in his protein shake. And then he was eating like a loaf of bread, a pound of beef, a quart of milk, and uh, a bunch of um, you going to call it? Those breakfast potatoes. And that was a meal for him. And he was just miserable eating all that food. But, um, you know, he got all the lifts he wanted. He pulled 405 for five, squatted 315 for five, bench 220, pressed 150. And, you know, he lost some of that when he ended up losing the weight, but he kept most of it. He's one of those guys. Now he looks like he plays basketball. Or looks like a swimmer but then when he starts loading the bar up people stare at him because it doesn't look like somebody that can you know squat close to 400 pounds you know
0: so yeah there's some uh some nice takeaways there uh, some other brass tack things that i've learned from you that i think people might find useful so when we talked about carbs you don't just want to eat like fast burning carbs like you know like bread and grain like you want to eat carbs that have fiber and you for you for me you you hit have me set at 40 grams of fiber a day which when I first saw that, I was like, that's hard because like, like most food doesn't have a lot of fiber in it, right? You look at the, the, the breakdown of the bag is like three grams of fiber, two grams of fiber. But you pointed me in the direction of these like mission tortillas, the carb balance tortillas. And I think the one I'm having right now, like it has like 14 or 13 grams of carb or fiber in it. So it's like right there, I almost got like a quarter of my fiber done just with my breakfast burrito in the morning. So thank you for letting me know about that. So other good high fiber uh, sources of, of raspberries have become my jam. Like I eat raspberry, like like a couple of raspberries a day. It's fantastic. Pinto beans, another one. Like just with those three things, I I get my forty grams of fiber in, and I'm good. And then you know for mostly I eat you know breakfast. It's like eggs, egg whites, and an egg. So I get my fat, and my protein. I got the the mission tortilla going on in there. Then I usually train. And then after that, after I train, I'll have whey protein shake. And then I, I this is, I don't know, which, let me get yours take on this. This is kind of how I get my carbs and my whey protein. I, I buy oat flour and rice flour. And I just put a scoop in there with my whey protein. Because so I just, I, didn't, I don't, I'm, I'm lazy. I just want to drink my, my food when I'm, supp- when, you know, for my after meal. So I just do like a, like a quarter cup of brown rice flour, which is about 30 grams of carbs after i train and then lunch it's usually like some like chicken and sweet potatoes and then then i have like another like snack between lunch and dinner and that's like whey protein and oat flour shake and then dinner is like whatever the the missus makes and then i just adjust based on whatever the macro recommendations you've given me when the other thing, another thing I'm about you know, if it fits your macros is the flexibility. Because, like, you know, if I know I'm going to go out to like, so like last week, I went out to Texas Roadhouse for dinner with some friends. I was like, man, that's going to be a big giant calorie bomb. I kind of just didn't really eat during the uh, the day and just saved everything for that big meal. And I was fine. I didn't like gain a ton of weight. I mean, I I did gain a lot of weight because like there's a lot of sodium, so you, you know, have a lot of. I guess you retain a lot of water, but like, it didn't do a lot of damage to my, my, my diet.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much how it goes, you know, it's just water weight. And uh, if your calories are where they need to be, then you're not going to, you know, get a bunch of fat from that.
0: Well, did you have something else you want to say? we you going to hit on something else about it? if it fits your macros or any other brass tacks advice? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm, if it fits your macros, what I like about that is, and the way I do it, as you just said, 40 grams of fiber. If you're eating 40 grams of fiber, it is not the, if it fits your macros you see on Instagram where people are eating a bunch of pizza and crap and saying, Oh, it fits my macros. It's not what we're doing here. So I just want to,
0: I hate that. Yeah. That I think that like does such a big disservice to people because you see all these like super fit people like eating donuts, like donuts, like they're like jacked and like regular people see like, Oh, I can eat donuts and look like that too. It's like, well, Probably not.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the problem with it. You know, it's kind of misleading. And then you also don't know what these people are really doing. You know, they're putting one picture up saying that they're doing this. And it's like, are they really doing this? You know, so it kind of creates a false image of what that is. The purpose to, if it fits your macros, is to allow flexibility and not demonize food so that, you know, okay, you're eating a healthy diet most of the time, but you want to go eat crap. It's okay. You know, it's not going to kill your gains. Just, you know, play it smart, balance it out, kind of like you would, you know, your money. I always... you know use the analogy that you know your food is like a checking account you know you have so much you can spend and once you go over you know you're gonna be in a bad place so that's kind of how look at it with that the other pet peeve that i've been having lately that uh, i meant to bring up earlier is just this idea that the way that weight loss has been prescribed to people is similar to that that you would prescribe to a bodybuilder you know the expectation is that hey you're supposed to lose for three months every single week, and that's a successful diet. And it's like, well, no, that's what a competitor does. The average person who has kids, a job, you know, all these other responsibilities, travels, has a lot of friends that come over as a social life. That person may not lose every week. It may take six, nine months, maybe a year because of interruptions in the routine, you know? I you know one of the things I find myself talking about a lot lately and is really important is I tell people yeah it's kind of like the you know starting strength linear progression you know you know in an ideal situation you have an 18 year old kid who plays video games all day lives with mom and has unlimited access to food yeah he might LP for 3 months straight add weight to the bar every time not get hurt and have a successful linear progression but for most of us and rip writes it in the book You know, you'll have a few good months, then, you know, life will get in the way, stress, injuries, death in the family, and uh, you'll have to reset, start over, and by the end of it, it's been nine, ten months, you know, because of all these things. Well, the same applies to diet. You know, you're going to have people that come over and want to eat out, and you're not going to lose weight that week, you know, because you have low-calorie needs, and the food that you're eating out has almost your entire day's worth in a plate, but you want to eat that, and that's okay You're just not going to lose that week. Next week will be better. You know, maybe that'll happen for three weeks in a row before you get more rhythm for another three weeks. So as long as the overall trend is down, just like, you know, when you're lifting, the overall trend is up for the weight on the bar, you're in good shape. But I think that we shouldn't be telling people that their successful weight loss looks like that of a competitor.
0: Yeah, I think that I guess that's an important part of your job as a dietitian, not only like a scientist, right, where you're prescribing you know, macronutrients based on, you know, science, right? The theory that we talked yeah. about at the beginning, but like, you're also a psychologist in a lot of ways, right? Because you <laughs> have to help them manage expectations and then help them realize it's okay. If you didn't lose your pound this week, we'll get it again next week. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. I think, I think that's good advice for everybody. I, I know I, when I started working with you, that was the first thing you told me. It's like, Hey, but you know, I know you want to like, Look, Jack, but I just want to let you know that it's not going to be linear. It's sort of, it's going to be, it's going to go fluctuate up and down and you have to be okay with that. And like, that was actually really helpful because um, it prevented me from getting frustrated early on and just being like, okay, it's okay. As long as the trend is down, I'm good. Yeah. Well, hey Robert, this has been a great conversation. Um, where can people go to learn more about your work? I imagine you've got some stuff up on StartingStrength.com.
1: I am all over the place, so I am at um, StartingStrength.com. I moderate the nutrition forum, so you can find information about me there. I uh, run nutrition at StartingStrength Online Coaching, so you can find me there. I have my own website, WeightsAndPlates.com.
0: You can find me there. Everywhere and everywhere. Hopefully, hopefully get some scientific journals out soon. Right, right. Well, well, hey Robert, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yep, thank you, sir. My guest today was Robert Santana. He's the nutrition coach at Starting Strength Online Coaching. you can also find more information about his work at startingstrength.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/santana. We can find links to resources, we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness Podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.